Ahoy, and thank you for listening to the Curious Life of a Scientist podcast. I'm Katie, and I started this podcast because I realize that I am surrounded by fascinating people as I go through graduate school, <clears throat> and I thought it would be great to talk to them and share it with anyone interested. I also thought it might be helpful to any students or aspiring scientists to get an idea of what a career in the sciences might be like. In this episode, I talked to Dr. Sidney Golub, and uh, I found it really inspiring that he seemed to follow his interests and built a successful career doing the different things that he enjoyed. At the end, he recommends a book that I actually have uh, on my bookshelf about Rosalind Franklin, who was one of my science heroes. So I think I will finally go and start reading it. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions, please email me at biocuriouskatie at gmail.com. And you can also follow me on Twitter at BioCuriousKatie. Enjoy. With your host, Katie Sanders. All right, welcome to the third episode of Curious Life of a Scientist. Today I'm talking to Dr. Sidney Golub and um, he was the professor of my class last year, or last quarter, about stem cells, ethics, and policy. And he is the current uh, interim director of the UCI Stem Cell Research Center. <laughs> so we'll start with just kind of talking about your journey to where you are now, kind of when you got interested in science, um, starting in your childhood. Were you born and raised in California? Oh, no, I was <laughs> not, Katie. I'm, a, I'm an Easterner. Okay. Uh, thanks for... for inviting me to join in this. <laughs> yeah. uh, I was raised in Connecticut. My dad was a pharmacist and always okay. wanted to be a doctor. My two older brothers are physicians. All right. Uh, so so, was... so my, I had an uncle who was a professor of botany. Oh, great. So, so it was in the so family. It, it was a, you know, there was a, a family tradition of science and biomedical science of various types. Mm -hmm. I also had another uncle who was a pharmacist and, uh, uh, so science was was discussed at, around the dinner table. Yeah. It was something we were all interested in. And so I was interested in science from an early age. I wanted to be a, uh, an, what we'd say, an astronaut now. Then I wanted <laughs> to be a space cadet. <laughs> uh, and uh, whether it was going to be in medicine or research was really the only question for me, and I kind of wandered into research. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, as an undergraduate, um, it was. So, where did you go to undergrad? I went to Brandeis University in in uh, near Boston. Okay. And uh, I was debating between political science and hmm. biology as a major. I was taking courses in both, uh, and uh, I still love pol political yeah. science and politics as a as a issues, uh, but. Uh, I took microbiology in my in my junior year mm -hmm. and genetics, and I was hooked. Yeah, all the good stuff. <laughs> um, and uh, I I was uh, from then on it was how do I do this? Mm -hmm. So I went to went I was actually quite a linear student. I went college, uh, high school, college, graduate straight school, straight into grad school, straight to all graduate right. school, and in those days you could 
do a dissertation in four years. <laughs> <laughs> Lucky. <laughs> and, uh, and then I, I got a postdoctoral fellowship. So where was your? Where did you go to grad school? I went to grad still... school in Philadelphia at Temple oh, University. Oh wow, you're all around the East Coast. <laughs> I, I was a pure East Coast person. Yeah. I had, uh, except for the two years then, I uh, as a postdoc, I lived in Sweden. I went to Ooh. Stockholm, Sweden. Wow, uh, how did you end up there? Well, I, I was doing a little bit of tumor immunology. Mostly, I was doing bacteriology, but some mm -hmm. of it involved. Uh, and it, it was all endotoxin research, and endotoxins can induce tumor necrosis. And mm -hmm. So we did some tumor necrosis assays, led me to some interest in cancer biology. And those were the days when cancer immunology was being invented as a discipline. And I really got excited about it, and I wrote to, uh, to Professor George Klein in, in Stockholm, and he said, if you can get a fellowship, you can come. <laughs> and, <laughs> so you had just read his papers and just were interested in what his lab was doing and just... Yeah, basically, basically. Just wrote uh, to him directly? Oh, oh yeah. Uh, huh. Although I did go to my, my pre-doctoral mentor with, uh -huh. with my list of names. And that was one that he strongly pointed to. The fact that okay. both my, my doctoral advisor and George were from... Budapest originally oh. probably helped in his recommendation uh. <laughs> that it would that George would be a great lab to go to. It was a it was a great choice. I enjoyed every minute there. Yeah, so it was kind of a little bit of a continuation or similar stuff as your grad. It was really graduate? quite different. It oh, was, it was different. It, it was a okay. big shift. It, it utilized a little <laughs> bit of what I was doing, but but it was a it was a real shift into a different okay. field. It was from mouse. Uh, Bacteriolo bacteriology in mice mm -hmm. to immunology in humans. Oh, okay. And and um, it was a great experience. I learned a tremendous amount, and I met friends and who, who yeah, were you con continued to this day as friends. That's great. Yeah, were you hesitant about moving to Europe? I mean. That's a big oh, no. change. No, <laughs> I, no, I was not the least bit. You were like, I was going to be an adventure, and I would say uh, three quarters of the of the people I wrote to were in Europe. Oh, so you wanted to get I over wanted there? To go. That's interesting. Yeah, I kind of took time off after undergrad because I wanted to travel. I guess I didn't really think about the fact that I could just travel somewhere to get to go to grad school or or postdoc, or maybe I didn't want to be that far away for that long. I guess. Is why I didn't, but, it but was, that's, that's it, it was a life-changing experience. Yeah. And quite wonderful. I enjoyed it tremendously. Did you have time to explore the country or explore the area? Yeah. You think? <laughs> yeah. Do you have more time as a postdoc? I don't know. <laughs> than grad school, do you well, think? Well, post, postdoc is, oh, yes. Oh, okay. Oh, postdoc is, is, for me, it was absolutely the most wonderful period of, 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 of a great, I mean, I've loved this career. Yeah. But postdoc, you you don't have courses, you don't have uh, dissertations, you don't have committee rules, and so on. You you do research, yeah, and you do research, and you write it up for papers, and that's it. Yeah, and but so, isn't there more pressure on you because you gotta get a you job? Gotta, yeah, you gotta <laughs> prove yourself, or as a scientist, or you know, yeah, to get a job. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but, but I guess. But. 
I was, I guess, naive. I was absolutely confident. <laughs> Maybe that's, yeah, another good thing about just going all the way through. You just think, well, this is what I'm doing. You don't question it <laughs> as much. And I, and I was having such a good time. Yeah. It, uh, the, the place where I went was as a postdoc. Uh, I, I had a good experience as a graduate student or as good experience as you can have as a graduate student. All mm -hmm. graduate experiences are flawed <laughs> ups and downs <laughs> but uh, it was uh, the postdoctoral experience was was magical it was oh. in this wonderful city in a very international lab i mean the yeah. people i worked with were from japan and oh, wow. and uh, russia and uh, india and argentina and scotland and I made and Sweden, and we made all these great friends, and I learned a tremendous amount. And we uh, we traveled around Europe for you know a couple weeks each year. Yeah, and, saw the sights and and learned a little bit of Swedish, and it was just <laughs> it was just fabulous. Yeah, that sounds great. And then I got a job offer from UCLA. Oh, and I said, well, California. Why would I want to go to California? <laughs> yeah. I was this East Coast Eurocentric. Yeah. And I came out, then we decided it was the best job offer that I'd gotten. My wife was pressing me hard to take one at NIH. Oh. Uh, but. Uh, Did you want to stay on the East Coast? Yeah, she yeah. thought California was a crazy place to go. <laughs> <laughs> I've noticed that a lot of people that come from the East Coast kind of are. But I did have a, a brother living out in California, and so okay. so that eased the transition, and so we took took the job at UCLA. Okay, and thinking, well, this will be good for a couple of years until I find something better on the west on the East Coast, and I stayed ah. there twenty three years. Yeah, and you're still here. I <laughs> well, I'm still in California, but yeah, twenty three I mean, years at yeah. UCLA, and then okay, so then another bunch here at UCI. So. Was it the same at UCLA where you start as an assistant professor and yep. then get tenure and kind of do all that? Oh, so you were there for 23 years. Yes. So, so. what was the main focus of your lab? I was doing uh, human cancer immunology. I was doing NK cells. Okay. Uh, and uh, uh, if you go back into the early history of NK cells, a lot of the, the early experiments were done in Stockholm. And so, oh. so I was there when a lot of the beginnings of the field were being uh, explored, mm -hmm. and and I got in kind of early in that field. And uh, I always had an interest in cytotoxic T lymphocytes, and so mm -hmm. uh, cytotoxic lymphocytes were an interest. And I I had this lab program based largely in human cytotoxic lymphocyte differentiation. Okay. And uh but I was also appointed in the department of surgery oh. in the in the oncology division and I was doing a lot of work uh in um, cancer immunology with human patients with in collaboration with a number of my clinical colleagues. So, so would you get samples or biopsies bet. from straight from oh wow and, and and some of the things we helped design i helped design some of the clinical experiments uh-huh uh and and uh, uh did some 
some really interesting experiments that you that you can only do if you've got a good friend who's a surgeon. Yeah, yeah, I've noticed that having those collaborators in the hospital can really help move things along to get samples and yeah. stuff like that. We had a, we had a great team and uh, great collaborations. Uh, and how was UCLA? Like, did you like living in LA? And was it? Yeah, how was life there? <laughs> well. I, I like living in LA. I, I liked it. Uh, I like the the uh, environment. I like the fact that you know one of our first weekends in California on one roll of film this pre-digital, right? <laughs> yeah. On one roll of film, we had desert flowers and mountain skiing and <laughs> and a visit to the beach. Yeah. Uh, the variety of things you can do in California is so attractive yeah uh, that we settled in to the degree that when my son was growing up and when he came to applying for college i said oh there's all these wonderful places on the east coast he said i'm not <laughs> buying any place but california oh yeah <laughs> i'm not leaving raised californians there you go yeah, yeah. he's absolutely a triumph of environment over heredity <laughs> yeah, I lived on in New York for a couple years, and it didn't take long for me to get the urge to move back to California, both for family and just because, yeah, I just love it over here. Um, well, I'm, I'm actually a pretty urban character. I did a mm -hmm. sabbatical in New York City. I enjoyed it greatly. Okay. Uh, the my, in fact, my only complaint about L.A. and to some degree about Orange County is it's too spread out. I do like places that are yeah. kind of urban. Yeah, but, uh, you can wander around more. But there's an awful lot to do here, and it's very enjoyable. Yeah. And the style of science is different here. How so? It's much more collaborative, much more cooperative, and, mm -hmm. and in the East it tends to be more secretive, people don't are, yeah. are more suspicious, they don't want to collaborate. Yeah, they're more it, protective of their stuff. More, and Yeah, uh, I can see kind of why people would be either way, um, depending on where you are, but that's, that's one of the things that drew me to UC Irvine, is just it seemed like there was a lot of opportunity for collaboration and people were working with each other and it only helps everyone learn more, I think, and you know get, get more into their project when they have people to talk to about it and everything like that. So, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I don't, I don't know what it's like over there. Um, so then, what made you leave UCLA, or where did you go from there? Well, at UCLA, I, I was just chugging along, being mm -hmm. a research scientist, getting grants, writing papers, going to meetings, mm -hmm. uh, doing doing the stuff that you do as yeah. a faculty member, enjoying all of it, uh, and. Um, uh, there was a new dean of medicine appointed, and he asked me to come meet with him, which of course I did. <laughs> I hadn't, I, I'd heard him speak, but I hadn't met, really met him or sat down and talked with him before. Mm -hmm. And uh, he chatted with me and said that uh, he he'd like me to join his dean's office as a, as an associate dean and work on on junior faculty development issues. Okay. It's a, an interesting thing to do. Yeah. And, and, you know, he made it clear that he wanted me to continue in my other academic pursuits. And, uh huh. Uh, and so, uh, so I started out with this 
relatively small, small portfolio in the dean's office of, of working on career development issues with, with junior faculty. Oh, okay. And then it grew into the full academic affairs, all the appointments, promotions, uh, faculty misconduct cases, and so on. Okay. And what kind of things were there for career development for the junior site? Is it like seminars and well, write grants and yeah, know. those are the kinds of programs that w that we that we brought out. Ones about how the promotion process works, mm -hmm. how grant system works, uh, having people understand what the rules and are and and how how to use them effectively. Uh huh. Uh, arranging for mentoring uh, for people who were who who wanted yeah. to get going in their in their research programs and were were finding some difficulty finding the right resources or the right the right advice. So we did a little yeah, kind of matchmaking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then I got from there, kind of the role grew, and I, I became one of our kind of chief faculty recruiters <laughs> and uh, eventually the basic science departments all had me as their primary contact person with the dean's office and after six years I was the senior associate dean when the dean mm. left to become the president of the Institute of Medicine uh, I was asked to be the interim dean okay. which was a interesting and uh, challenge because I'm not a physician uh -huh. And yeah. to be a dean of medicine without being a physician is perfectly possible, but yeah. unusual. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I did that for uh, about two and a half years. Okay. And what did you look for when you were recruiting new faculty? What I mean, how, I guess, how did you find people to recruit or that you were interested in? Well, what kind of was the process there. I. Search committees find people, and okay. they have to find the people who are doing the science that excites people. My role in the dean's office was to make the to sell the institution, uh -huh. make it attractive, and then to make to find out what was important. So, is it important because a person's a two in a two career family, and we're going to have to find something to make the other person happy? Oh. Uh, is it a matter of the, finding the right collaborators? Is it a matter uh -huh. of research space? Is uh -huh. it having a certain kind of uh, opportunity, to, uh, teaching opportunities? Uh -huh. People are different. They have different priorities. And unless you ask them what is important, yeah. you're not going to make the pitch that's going to be important, that's going to resonate with them. Mm -hmm. so, so that became one of my chief functions. Okay, so that's interesting, you know, just thinking about trying to get a job, it seems like the person trying to get the job is always trying to put in the most effort and, you know, get a good position, but kind of thinking about it from the other perspective is nice. Yeah, you want to recruit the people that you want. You want to recruit the want. people you want to come. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you want to make it very desirable for them, so. And even if they don't, you want them to go away saying, what a terrific place. Let me recommend my postdoc go yeah. there, my graduate student go there. Yeah, that's true. Um, so anyway, I, I was the, uh, the interim dean of medicine for more than two years. 
and uh, and that was an incredible experience. Yeah. Uh, very very labor intensive <laughs> <laughs> uh, because I, I had to learn so much about medical reimbursement and finance and management, uh-huh. yeah, as well as science and education and so on. It, it, yeah, it, it was a relentless but enormously interesting job. Mm-hmm. And uh, the permanent, the new permanent dean had just been identified and was about to arrive when UCI called and said, would you be interested in coming here? We'd like <laughs> to interview you for, uh, for, an, for a leadership position here. And it turned out that I came to UCI uh, initially as the executive vice chancellor. Okay, great. <laughs> so I spent four years doing that, and it was exciting. And I, it, it was interesting because it was a full campus responsibility. So oh, I was wow. outside of the medical school. Yeah. You know, I had to, to learn what are the issues among the people in the School of the Arts or the School of Humanities yeah. and the Social Sciences. Uh, as well as the medical program. Clearly, I was brought in to, to help build in the medical uh-huh. side and the research side. But Focus or... But, but the, it's a full, full spectrum yeah. job, and it was really wow. interesting. Yeah, getting to know the different departments and mm-hmm. what's going on. So then were you also in that position... I mean, you probably had lots of responsibilities, but also recruiting people and... Yeah, trying to build. Most of my recruiting at that level was uh, for program directors or or deans. Okay, yeah. And bring in those people, then they bring in the good people, and it goes that's on right. and on. I see. Oh exactly. wow! And and recruiting a dean of engineering or a dean of the arts was really an interesting experience. Yeah. You learned so much about what's important for those folks. Yeah. And, and what they need. And you would just go talk to the faculty in the department and, yeah, just find out yeah, what, you, yeah, what they you, want. It, it's essential to mm-hmm. get a lot of input. Yeah. And to, to, to not get it from only, only your own instincts, but uh-huh. to, to, to get a wide variety of input. Yeah. And so I did that for four years, and then uh, the chancellor who hired me, Chancellor uh, Laurel Wilkening, uh, uh, retired. And I said, okay, it's time to take a break from this. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, did you miss the science? Did you miss kind yeah. of lab work? And and when I came to UCI, that's when the break in my lab work really began to deepen. I tried mm-hmm. to maintain something here, but it was hard yeah. to reestablish a research program and... Yeah, that's a lot. And in a new place. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I'd managed to keep it going throughout my time at UCLA. But as I oh. came to UCI, it, it fell off. And I began to focus yeah. on, first of all, my teaching activities. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also, I'd been involved in serving the institution in a variety of ways. And so I thought it might mm-hmm. be useful. A new opportunity came arose uh, when some friends said the, uh, the position of executive director at uh, FASIB, the Federation of American Societies for Experimental Biology in Bethesda, Maryland, mm-hmm. was open. That's an organization that's the oldest and largest 
Biomedical Researchers Organization. About 100,000 biologists are in it. Cool. 22, <laughs> 22 uh, societies. And, uh, and so uh, I allowed, allowed my name to go in for that. And mm-hmm. I, was, uh, I was recruited to be their executive director. And that, that oh. gave me four years in Washington, D.C. area. Okay. Back to the uh, East Coast. But mostly it exposed a whole new area to me of science policy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, being right there in the, the capital. Was that part of your job to yes. know about the policy? and? We had to represent to the, the biologists in, uh, in issues wow. like how, how are research misconduct investigations, should they be conducted? Uh, how, how much, what areas of biomedical research need the most funding? How are we going? To, how much funding wow. should go into this kind of grant mechanism versus that kind of grant mechanism? Mm-hmm. And then, boom! What issue popped up on the horizon? Stem cells. Stem cells, <laughs> our favorite. Uh, and so, being there at that time, I was there in the last two years of the Clinton administration. The first two years of the George W. Bush administration. Oh, okay. And dealing with it in those circumstances in science policy mm-hmm. uh, really pushed my interest in that direction. Mm-hmm. So uh, it was supposed to be a three-year appointment at VASA. We extended it for a year. And then I came back to UCI after four years there. And... When I came back, I sat down with some colleagues and I said, I'd like to create a course on science, science policy yeah. for scientists about how policy is made and mm-hmm. what the controversial policy issues. And I gave some talks in my home department of microbiology about the NIH budget and how it's made and so on. Yeah, things like that, that was great background to bring back. And, and the stem cell folks came to me and said, if you're creating a course on science, on, on scientific policy, uh, you think you could include stem cells because we're putting together a stem cell center. <laughs> yeah. And so uh, a marriage was made. In, <laughs> and uh, I said, happy to work with them about it. I said, you know, this is nice. It, it gives a context mm-hmm. to, to what were kind of free-floating ideas yeah. in my head. Yeah, focus to kind of learn about mm-hmm. how science policy and ethics. Okay, so so how long has this have you been teaching the course then? Well, I came back to UCI from from Bethesda in two thousand three. Okay. So it's been about ten years. I didn't create the course immediately. Uh-huh. Uh huh. And I think we probably got it rolling sometime. Around 2008 or 9, I could look it up. Yeah. Uh, about the same time, the uh, then vice chancellor for research, uh, who was Bill Parker at that time, asked me mm-hmm. if I would help create a new stem cell research oversight committee. Oh. So we sat down and designed that, and I chaired it, and I chaired that from when it was in when it was uh, started in. 2008 until just last September. Yeah, cool, great. 
Uh, so I've kind of turned all my focus and issue and interest onto the stem cells. I felt very mm -hmm. comfortable with stem cell field, both in the policy and ethics side, because I've been dealing with it so extensively at, yeah. at FASIB. And because as an immunologist, I'd been working on cell differentiation and yeah. NK cell differentiation, T cell differentiation. These were issues I was comfortable with scientifically, even mm -hmm. if I wasn't a card-carrying stem cell biologist. <laughs> yeah, still uh, interested. Yeah, that's a great kind of flow of how you just followed your interests and just took the positions that were interesting to you. And also, they just all yeah led up to great positions and things that interest you, <laughs> which is good to hear <laughs> from my side. Um, that's great. And then, yeah, and then you became the director, the interim director here. Yes, that well, that was nothing I was, I, uh, that, that was unexpected, let's put it that <laughs> okay. way. Uh, it was, uh, uh, since I'd been doing the Stem Cell Oversight Committee, I'd seen all the work that goes on here. Yeah. And made, you know, make sure it was compliant with the CERM regulations and the NIH regulations and so on. And when the position of director became vacant, Peter stepped down to mm -hmm. focus on his research. And um, there was, a, they asked me, would I consider doing this? And I said, this is about the only administrative job I come back to because <laughs> it's, Stem cells was the focus of my interest these days, and I was happy to yeah. help out. So what additional responsibilities did that require? No, a lot of things, it sounds like. <laughs> All fun things. <laughs> yeah. All fun things. Well, mostly fun things. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of community relations, a lot of fundraising. Uh-huh. Uh, but there's also, this is, a, you know, an activity that needs some management, so... Mm -hmm. who gets what piece of lab space and ah. who gets which office and yeah. uh, uh, what do we spend money on and can we afford this and can we afford that? And yeah. The, the, the nuts and bolts of managing something. Yeah. Okay. Hmm. So have you been enjoying that? Yeah. This? I yeah. really have. Good. Cool. All right. Well, that's very interesting path you've taken there. Um, <clears throat> yeah, so I just wanted to talk about a few ethical issues with stem cells, particularly um, kind of what I thought was interesting in the class, well, one of the things was just kind of how you said there's no right answer. You know, some people think this, some people think this, and neither one is right or wrong, but you still have to be able to discuss it with people and help them decide what they think and because what people think is all going to affect policy and, and what scientists can do. Um, I guess, yeah, what, what do you think are the biggest issues there? Why, why don't people want to use what, you know, overview of why people don't want to use embryonic stem cells? Well, let, let me make a, a, a overly broad generalization here. Okay. Um, I think there we conflate two sets of issues, which are morals and ethics. Mm -hmm. And and I'm, the distinction I'm going to use, and I'm not sure a moral philosopher would use this distinction, mm -hmm. <laughs> but, but somebody expert in philosophy would. But, but morals 
are, are about right versus wrong. Mm -hmm. And religion is based in moral thinking. These are the things you should do. These are the things you must not do. Uh -huh. These are right. These are good. These are wrong. These are bad. These will get you to heaven. These won't. Right. <laughs> that kind of, of thing. Ethics is actually, an, interests me as a field because it's about right versus right. Uh, uh -huh. it's, these are both right things with, with outcomes that are, are um, ambiguous, not perfect, and you have to choose among the imperfect yeah. right against this imperfect right with this imperfect outcome and that imperfect. So it's choosing about between rights yeah. or sometimes choosing between which is less wrong. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and those are very different kind of mindsets. Yeah. So, so when, when you ask about society, society doesn't usually do much profound ethical thinking. Yeah. <laughs> it is not always, this is the right way, and, and this is also a right yeah, way. And it's let's right, yeah, it's It's usually, wrong. this is the moral way. Mm -hmm. this, is, this creates life, this destroys life. This is good, this is evil. Mm -hmm. uh, that's just this kind of the structure of most religions. Yeah. Not all, not in all circumstances. But religion is where most people go to to get their moral yeah. instruction. Yeah. Uh, they're not trained in ethics. The complexity of ethical thinking, of weighing uh, mixed results versus mixed results mm -hmm. is not the kind of thing they do in most circumstances in their daily life. Yeah. And so the kind of the basis of a lot of societal thinking is these these moral imperatives which derive or are reinforced by mm -hmm. religious thought. And religion admirably usually is opposed to killing. Yeah. <laughs> right. There have been religions that weren't so opposed, yeah. but, but they are not in existence these days. Or, mm -hmm. uh, but uh, uh, most of the great religions of the world profess to be against, in favor of life and opposed to, to unnecessary or inappropriate deaths. Mm -hmm. And so people take these as a given. And now you ask them to confront it in a different kind of way. Yeah. To weigh, but there is a benefit that comes. And and the loss is is mitigated in some way. And the loss is not a full-fledged grown human being with who's, who can appreciate what's happening to him or her. Mm -hmm. It's a collection of cells. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's I'm sympathetic when People struggle with these things and say, "I'm not comfortable with what, with with using embryos." I understand that because it's confronting these issues in a in a very different kind of way than we're used to. Yeah, and I think I'm not sure I would have been able to do it without a long period of reading and discussion and learning about. Yeah, I don't think people are born. 
as ethicists. Yeah. They may be born <laughs> moral, but they're not. Yeah. But ethic, ethics is something you learn by, by looking situation by situation. Mm -hmm. And this field requires a lot of situational analysis. Yeah. It's part of the reason it's so interesting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think kind of in the first couple discussions that I had about it, it was just coming to try to define when life begins. When does life begin? When, you know, when an egg is fertilized, when a nervous system develops, when, you know, a baby's born. It's, you know, people, I think, trying to define when that, when that is, is a problem. And that's, I, maybe that's thinking about it too scientifically. Um, as you said, if people just think of an embryo as, yeah, a baby or, you know, gonna be, uh, will be a baby, then I think that does make it <laughs> more difficult, especially if you're not in a scientific career or field where you hear about these kinds of things and think about them often. Um, you know, recently I was a, I was fulfilling my civic responsibility and and was called to with a jury summons to serve on a jury. Mm -hmm. And I was interviewed for a case. Uh, you know, they they select a group of people, mm -hmm. and then they ask you questions to see if you're going to serve on that jury. And this is a case in which the defendant was pleading not guilty by reason of insanity. Ah. And so the the prosecutor was asking me questions about could I, or the defense attorney, I forget which one. Mm -hmm. And of course, my problem here is that I'm he's thinking about it in a kind of almost religious view. There is a definition mm -hmm. in the law of what is insane behavior under the law. Uh huh. And I'm thinking of it in a scientific view that this is a continuum of sanity versus yeah. mental, you know, mental derangement of mm -hmm. some sort. And where along this continuum is this individual? And how do you measure that? And how do you fit that into the law? Yeah. And I said, I have this problem. <laughs> yeah. And he said, you're off the jury. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, uh, for which I really wasn't, I really didn't object terribly. Yeah, yeah that's fine. <laughs> but, uh, but that, I think, illustrates the mm -hmm. kind of challenge that we have as scientists because we're thinking about things, mm -hmm. and as we think about the ethics of them, more and more we think about them in this continuum of this is a little bit right and a little bit of a problem and how to, how to measure and weigh these factors. Mm -hmm. Whereas society sometimes asks us, no, 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 no. We want it, it's right or it's wrong. Yeah. Yeah, and that's black hard. And white. Yeah, um, and that's why I try to convey in the class is think yeah. about how difficult this is. Yeah, it's not so easy. The gray area—it's all a gray area. <laughs> um, what was I going to say? Let's see. Um, I was just thinking about something. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. So I think that just also kind of exhibits how important it is to um, try to explain that to people that aren't scientists or in science is just to, you know, do community outreach and talk to people about this issue just so they can help them decide, you know, what they think about it and have a stance. And then, of course, that will go on to affect policy and how they're going to vote and something, depending on how well they understand it. So 
Yeah. Um, it's just my hope that people make an informed decision. Yeah. Uh, they will bring their religious upbringing and mm -hmm. the, their moral values and their way of approaching ethical dilemmas to it, but at least they ought to have a basis of real facts. Yeah. <laughs> of, yeah, that's a good point. Okay, so now I kind of want to switch gears to more of the lifestyle aspects of being a scientist. Um, as I've been in grad school, I think my level of stress has increased exponentially. And so I was just wondering if there's any particular ways that you find ways to relax or relieve stress um, and find balance in your life. A friend of mine always answered this kind of question with gin helps. It's <laughs> 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 um, true, true. Good gin and tonic. Cool. <laughs> um, the... Uh, uh, graduate school is 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 a, is a, 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 a relentless set of uh, reality testing experiences. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, I'm I'm glad uh, I'm glad I got uh, I got my degree and I got through that. But uh, I don't my career and graduate school have little in common. Okay. <laughs> huh. I've never heard it put that way. Uh, uh, graduate school was a, was a set of, of experiences that were useful in thinking about how to do experiments mm -hmm. and, and, and exposed me to the, to the joy of discovery. Yeah. Um, but the life as a scientist came starting as a, as a postdoc. Okay. And so maybe um, it was easier to deal with stress at that point, or oh, it became hugely yes, okay, so much so, <laughs> yes, enormously easier, tremendously. Easier. Yeah, I guess it just seems like even if there isn't as much stress or it changes, it still seems like a lot of professors or or different people have have a good balance between life and work, and just kind of trying to figure that out how to. But maybe it's maybe it's the same thing with grad school. You feel like you always have to be in lab. <laughs> there is no balance because it's all lab no, work. When I was a graduate student, of course, uh, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm of the of the age that uh, the moment I left graduate school, I was subject to the draft and I was going to Vietnam. Oh wow! So I had to stay in graduate school if I wanted to stay alive. Wow. <laughs> Talk Jeez, about I didn't an even additional think about stress. that. Yeah, <laughs> seriously. Oh my gosh. Um, wow. So uh, um, it was it was a different era, yeah. and, and it had its own unique stresses. Uh, the uh, but even then, uh, we had friends. We we did things together. Uh, we decompressed. We uh, went, you know, whether it's picnicking or, yeah, or or, uh, and it. I went to my first scientific meetings, and it's, mm -hmm. uh, you know, so so it wasn't a big deal. We went from New York, from Philadelphia to New York, or to mm -hmm. Miami once. Ooh, and, you know, <laughs> uh, but. It, it was you could get out of the lab and into the world. Yeah, which is part of the reason I said I want to go to see science in some other part of the world and went to Europe. Mm -hmm. 
get some uh, perspective. Since then, uh, I've had a great uh, yen for travel. My mm -hmm. wife and I have gone to lots of places around this world. Uh, I did That's a lot great. of it as a scientist. Yeah, did you, would you have com like book conferences in places and then spend extra time there? I mean, you bet. That's okay. Exactly, that was exactly that my works. strategy. Um, I know good. colleagues who go to to the meeting. They come give their paper in Florence or or Madrid or London. Mm -hmm. Come give their paper and leave. I didn't do that. Yeah. I came. I gave my paper. I I I went. To the theater, to the opera, to the to, yeah. the to the countryside. I got out the camera. I took pictures. Mm -hmm. um, I wanted to experience where we were, where we were. Yeah, yeah. I think that's really important too. And that. And, and to this day, we do a lot of travel. We try to go someplace different each year that we mm -hmm. haven't been Ooh. once or twice. And do you have a favorite place or? I have many of them. Yeah, <laughs> I know. A top ten. Huh. <laughs> Most interesting places, uh, I would say Tanzania. Oh, going on photo safari in Africa is a thrilling experience. Bhutan in the Himalayas is wonderful. That, yeah, that seems really it's really exotic. exotic. Yeah, and this last summer, spring, we were in uh, Turkey and Uzbekistan. Oh, um, so we we we. Try to get out there. I think uh, Chile in South America is uh -huh. fabulous. Ooh, yeah. Gorgeous place. That's uh, we, great. So, so yeah, go travel. Yeah, sounds good. It's one good. of the perks of science. Yeah. Is yeah, they don't hold all the meetings in one place. <laughs> yeah, I guess if you yeah, just plan your meetings around a place, that sounds good. Good way to see the world. And, um, and we try... Uh, we. We, my wife and I love music and, and theater, and so we try to go mm -hmm. do things. There. Yeah. Not just see the sights, but go hear performances. Yeah. See, see what it's like. Go to, go to a soccer game. Go to. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that sounds good. Um, oh, another question I had for you is I noticed that you don't seem to have a problem with public speaking, and just if you ever did and how you overcame that or just any advice you have for someone. Um, especially, I mean, for me, depending on who I'm talking to, I can just have such a hard time, you know, going through something step by step and really explaining it. Um, and then, yeah, and then there's always nerves, but I don't know. Yeah. Do you get nervous? Sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think it improves the performance. Oh. So it, does, it doesn't bother me if I get nervous. I say, okay. ah, yes, that means I'm, it matters. <laughs> it matters. And I've, um, uh, I think I've always been pretty comfortable. Okay. Uh, it, it's uh, I like to to entertain people. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, when I first started, when I was a beginning assistant professor in the first class I was teaching, which was a medical school mm -hmm. immunology class, um, I I rehearsed and rehearsed and I made the poor people in my lab the technicians <laughs> and the graduate students listen to my lecture uh -huh. before I gave it and uh, my poor wife had to listen to, <laughs> she's not even a scientist <laughs> um, 
And I don't think there's okay. any yeah. any substitute for standing up with your you know your slides or your mm -hmm. PowerPoint or your blackboard and trying it out. Yeah, practicing. And practicing it. And that gives you a lot of confidence mm -hmm. to do it. Yeah. Do you still practice talks now or do you feel more comfortable just? Um, I practice them in a, a little, little easier way. Mm -hmm. right? But, uh, you know, I'll take the PowerPoint and I won't, when I finish the PowerPoint, when I put the slides together, mm -hmm. I will go over it. I won't stand up and speak it, but uh -huh. I will yeah. think about how I'm going to express this idea and, and keep fiddling with it. Not that it needed fiddling with, but because it's <laughs> yeah. a way to to know it well. Know it well. Okay, great. All right. Well, thank you for um, taking the time to have this conversation. But let's go through the lightning round questions uh, really do, quick. Do I get extra points here? <laughs> yeah, points, points. Um, do you have any particularly funny or weird or crazy experiments that you've done or results that have come from something that you? Um, I, let me give you one, but I didn't do the experiment, but it was done in my lab. Okay. <laughs> uh, and it was done uh, by a very prominent scientist who was at that time just a beginning assistant professor. He's now the chair of the Department of Pathology at UCLA. Ooh. But at that time, he was a beginning assistant professor, and he called up and he said, uh, uh, can we borrow your uh, liquid scintillation counter? We've got an experiment that we need to assess some tritium mm -hmm. uptake of this stuff. I said, sure, send up your, you know, this, the, the student in your lab who wants to use it, and mm -hmm. we'll instruct them on to do it. We did that. And then this young fellow decided he would do the experiment and came in and took all the samples out of the counter mm -hmm. and discarded them and put his in to count not asking whether the experiment before him was complete, and it wasn't. Ah. So somebody else's experiment was completely ruined. Oh, no. One of my students' experiments. Oh. So, so John, who was the mentor, was really upset, very, very apologetic. Mm -hmm. and, and they came, you know, they came and they helped <laughs> oh. my student repeat the experiment. Mm -hmm. and, 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 and they couldn't have been more upset about it or apologetic uh -huh. and so and the funny part of it right i mean this happens the yeah. accidents happen the funny part was when he submitted a paper to the journal of immunology and in the acknowledgments he acknowledged the use of scintillation the memorable use of <laughs> sid gollop's scintillation count and the journal sent it back saying, what do you mean by <laughs> Memorable. <laughs> what kind of use of a scintillation counter is memorable? Yeah. And he said, I really want to keep it this way. And they allowed him That's to. That's great. <laughs> if you want to acknowledge, you know, you should be able to acknowledge what you want to. I, I agree completely. <laughs> yeah, because I mean... Stuff like that happens, <laughs> but that's nice to... <laughs> so he wanted to apologize in print, and that's the way he did. <laughs> nice. <laughs> that's great. Um, how about a favorite uh, or inspirational scientist, either someone you know or someone 
two quick ones. Uh, my postdoctoral mentor, George Klein, at this Karolinska Institute, mm-hmm. is a, a remarkable human being and a great scientist. And it was a thrill to work with him, and I learned an enormous amount. Mm-hmm. And I will always uh, be thankful that when I came to him with the idea for a project, he said, Good idea, said, go do it, <laughs> never telling me that four people had tried it before and <gasps> failed. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, and I got oh it to work. Oh, gosh, that's And great. he was right not to because, yeah. because he told me others had failed. I would say, oh, why do I want to bother? Yeah, it's already hard enough to start a new project <laughs> if you know everyone else has failed. Yeah, that would. <laughs> uh, the, the other, historically, I have a real interest in history, uh, mm-hmm. is Paul Ehrlich. The, okay. Uh, the... Um, one of the pioneer immunologists, the developer of the first drug to, to, to treat uh, uh, an infectious disease, uh, uh, heavy metal components to treat uh, uh, syphilis, mm-hmm. uh, the first coherent theory of how the immune system works, the development of the understanding of the complement system, pioneering work all mm-hmm. done at the beginning of the, uh, the 20th century, the end of the 19th century. Under the most difficult circumstances, he wasn't a physician. He was a Jew in Germany, mm-hmm. oh, wow. and they and he did these incredible things, despite the fact that nobody wanted to listen to him. Nobody wanted to give yeah. him any resources. And he did it by sheer brilliance. And if you want to read That's about great. somebody whose work really inspires about science under stress, mm-hmm. Paul Ehrlich. Okay. Check them out. Yeah. And with that, do you have any other book recommendations or? Yeah. Uh, two, two quick ones. Okay. Uh, one is called The Dark Lady of DNA. Oh, I think I have that on my bedside table. Uh, I've got it right up here on the bookshelf. <laughs> uh, biography of, of Rosalind Franklin. Uh-huh. And, and it's a really interesting insight into the contributions to great science by people who get don't get recognized. Yeah, yeah. That's why I find her story just fascinating. Her story is really an important one for people to understand. Mm-hmm. Uh, both the way women were treated in science, yeah. but also the way contributors who weren't the frontline brilliant idea, but yeah. really made it happen. Yeah. The way some really important contributions get shuttled to the side. Yeah. Uh, and... Uh, and hers is an important story. So I really recommend that book. Okay. In the stem cell field, uh, this one, The Body Politic by Jonathan Moreno. It's a great short book about science, ethics, and policy, and mm-hmm. politics, and history. And Okay, great. I actually also have that book because I remember you mentioned that. I love so, this book. So, okay, great. So I strongly recommend that. Great. Well, thank you so much for being my guest on the Curious Life of a Scientist podcast. You're very welcome.